Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. Louisa, data. It's everywhere. I know. In your living room, apparently. It is. Tell us more. <laughs> uh, actually, my husband is ploughing through the back catalogue of Star Trek at the moment, and there is a character called Data. So I've, um, yeah, I've learned that there are many different sorts of data and we are seeing so much data created, so much data collected, and we know that it has value to criminals. We've talked about that on previous podcasts and we know how it can be used to manipulate outcomes like election results. And we also know that it feeds into the algorithms that are used by artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I think the question we need to answer as a profession is, do we have the right systems in place, the right structures that we need now and in the future actually to effectively govern data, to be able to verify it and also check its integrity and ensure that we're keeping the information that needs to be kept private, private. So there's some really big questions we face. And there's a lot of debate about all of those topics. But we have someone today that's joining us, Daniela Treno, who sees us working with innovators, scientists, uh, researchers and policymakers to help shape and start bringing some of those issues together. Uh, look, she's got her finger in so many pies. Spark Festival. Yeah, I was reading that she was the cyber track leader for Spark Festival and she's also um, a volunteer at Startup Editor as well. So, yeah, she's really embedded in that environment and yeah I couldn't think of anybody more perfect to come and talk to us about these big issues today so let's get on with the chat today we have Daniela trainer and Daniela has a fantastic mantra the best way to predict the future is to go and create it yourself <laughs> I love it. Hey, Daniela, thanks for joining us today. And I wanted to talk to you about how you landed in cybersecurity. Can you share that story with us? I think you'll find that most women, we just don't have a straight path. And I, um, I did my computer science and, and commerce degree out of University of Sydney, and I thought the world revolved around business. So I landed straight into a consulting gig doing financial audits and finance projects and things like that. And, um, and on the floor, I was also working with some technology people. And then after a while, they were having so much fun. I wanted to find out what more they were doing. And at that point, they were breaking systems. So they were doing it at, at what was known at the time as ethical hacking. So I put my skills to use and started learning how to break systems. Um, you know, every man's dog at the time was learning um, hacking exposed was the book. Um, now they've built silence and various other tools. Um, so I had so much fun that I ended up staying more on the technology side and doing a lot more technology strategy and things like that. And then fast forward a couple of years and I ended up working in banking and finance, did, uh, a couple of gigs as chief security officer, um, then found my place in R and D when I felt that, um, I was too much on the consumer end of the tech space and, 
there must have been a way to be able to design what we really need and think differently. So I landed in what I thought was one of the most amazing places in Australia, NICTA, which was then starting to move um, with the CSIRO as a merger and became Data61. And uh, yeah, I started working in the innovation ecosystem with so many other things that I could talk to, but cybersecurity was just an exciting place to be, even back many years ago, because we were able to um, find the weaknesses and build stronger systems and structures as a result. And I just, I loved talking to people, helping them solve problems and doing that with creativity and cybersecurity just gave me that ability. Yeah, fantastic. I met you when you were at CSIRO and it had just become Data61 and I just loved the way that you thought about how to solve some of these problems. We had some serious challenges around finding nasty threat actors on the dark net and we got to work together to try and address solving that problem and worked out that we had some really common threads around how to address this issue. So it was really just fantastic. I wanted to talk to you about um, data, programmable data-driven software and this bigger discussion around um Who owns the data? I know you've got some really interesting views on that. Do you want to share that with us? Um, Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks for the very broad question, which I think could take us hours to dissect. (laughs) So we'll just skim around a couple of things uh, in that vein. Um, Well, it's it's no surprise that, you know, we're we're building economies and and, um, societies that are data-driven, and that's been happening for the last few years, although we've only coined that term more recently. Um, some of those that are in the oil business now coin it as though the data is the new oil. Um, I, I would like to think that it's actually the air that we breathe. It, you just can't get around it. Um, but it calls into question a couple of things. So whether the data is um, freely given, whether it has the biases of the, the, the owner or the creator of it, can you trust where it was created? or where it was manufactured, or where it was actually manipulated or managed. So it calls into a whole bunch of questions. But also the fact is, what do you do with it? And just because the data says the sky is blue, does that mean the sky is blue? So it calls into question um, aspects of how we live and how we breathe and how we build businesses and how we operate. Um, you can't do around it. I think there's a um, statistic out there that um, for every internet minute, there is trillions of data or um, hexabytes of data being created in every sense. But we are generating data for everything we do, whether that is the data from documents and things like that, that we know and love and have for, for all time, or more interesting, it's the um, human driven data. So it's the biological data that we create about our our DNA sequence, um, if you keep in touch with the Genome Project, um, or whether it's in our movements. So there's interesting research, um, which is still very early days, it hasn't yet been proven. But, you know, even the way we walk, our our gait, the way we expend energy in our body has a level of fingerprint that could determine who we are or, or how we behave or what that means. 
you know, we've talked about biometrics and the, the data that we can collect and generate from there, whether it's our fingerprints or whether it's our irises. I mean, there was a talk within the cybersecurity industry a couple of years ago alone, but that would be the new way of identifying and authorizing um, mechanisms. But that's obviously being fraught with a whole bunch of issues that we've yet to talk about around ethics and the the right to hold that data. But then we ask ourselves if that's what the purpose of that data is, then, you know, should it be compromised? Because let's face it, if it isn't, it will be at some point. Um, we know more in the future than we know today. Um, when it's compromised, how do we reassert that data that has integrity? And if we've used it to determine our ability to take out a loan or to assert who we are, then this whole concept of fake news comes into being of who are we really? Can we prove our identity? And when that provable point is lost or is called into question, how can we assert that identity? How can we assert what that data was meant to um, identify? So it's calling into account really interesting things. And so, and I'm going around in circles because there's just so many aspects to what you talked about. But if you see what's happening with fake news, which, you know, it calls into question, obviously, the integrity of, of journalism. And, you know, if you see what journalism is like today, um, you might even question, well, that was a long time coming around integrity. Um, but if you see what's happening with fake news, which is really just um, the old-fashioned military tactics of propaganda going on steroids now that technology enables that, then you can see that the next leap of that is uh, fake identity. and if you can see that as a military tactic or a tactic used for espionage and other techniques, then you start to ask yourself, then how do we build trust into all of these things where we rely on the data to be the deciding factor as to whether or not we trust it or not. So it calls into our system that we have in place. It calls into question the system of systems that we're operating in and calls into question whether the systems that we've built over the centuries and millennia will send us to the test of time, given that we are now effectively generating data and we're suggesting that data is the key to integrity. That is a massive elevator helicopter view of uh, that is just brilliant. And I think I need to probably unpack some of it. Yes, go for it. So I think if I'm hearing you correctly, I think we probably just start with something as basic as I think everybody now knows about Cambridge Analytica and how that manipulated the most fundamental right that we have in a society to vote. So I think that's one part of encapsulating what you're saying. I think the other part of it is that we've seen identity theft before, but we're seeing it now in a really, in a way that very high profile people's images are being scammed and taken as purporting something that um, is really valuable to society. So it's no longer down at the citizen level of we don't want people to have identity theft and, we can't, and we're trying to work out means of preventing it. But this is really at our political structures. These are hitting places that are influencing the sort of day-to-day decisions that we make in a democracy, right? Oh, totally. And I think that, you know, if you were a, a historian of military strategy, you could see it as coming. So, you would see that um, in World War II when they did the 
um, propaganda drops out of the airplanes over um, parts of Europe to try to change the sentiment on the ground of what was either happening, either to suggest there was, you know, um, war had been finished or that the Nazis were, you know, strengthening their position or the, the Russians were this or the fascists were that, you know, they're very simple techniques, but like anything, technology advances can be used for nefarious purposes. And anyone in the cybersecurity industry would have a, a long um, perceptive uh, view on that. So it stands to question that if you want to uh, influence or um, take control at a political level, you would try to destabilize democracies and what that means. And we've seen that across the world with the way they've done that using data-driven techniques around fake news. And if you see some of the advances which are good for cybersecurity in computer vision, they're also being used to change the perception of, is this really Barack Obama? Is this really Britney Spears and these notable people? And it's very difficult uh, to tell whether that is the real person or not. And I think that's where I think cyber innovation can actually play a key role because you look at these techniques and you say, well, if I'm a person of um, importance or um, a personality, if you want to use that term, your brand, what you stand for and who you are is, is how you actually generate your income, but it's also what you personally stand for and your values. So I can honestly see that there are going to be needing to be reputational risk services out there to say, you know, to protect those brands and to provide some sort of risk metric that says that what you're dealing with is the real deal. And then you can translate that into, into business branding, which are things that we've always needed, but I think cybersecurity has a role to play. I also think that with what we're seeing around the right to votes, privacy and those sorts of things, you know, if we were to take the other side of it, instead of being very much um, the hamster in the wheel and obviously being on the defensive side, if we took a proactive view, those are the technologies and those are the cybersecurity measures that we need to be strengthening. And maybe that should change in the way we develop these new products and capabilities so that we build more trust into these things so that people can tell when it's fake. They can tell when they're being manipulated and they have a level of integrity and confidence. So the tough question is, how do we go about doing that? How do we build those reputational risk models and put those guardrails in so that we can start understanding the difference between trust and trustworthiness? The answers are, I think, like Shrek says, they're full of layers and uh, it's not a simple answer because you're trying to influence at so many points. And like anything in cybersecurity, there needs to be the economics, needs to be in the favor of doing so, doing something differently. And, and I think that we haven't hit that point just yet. It's almost like you need a crisis to know that you need cyber insurance or you, need, you didn't have right enough, enough or sufficient cybersecurity. So um, I think it's about starting small and proving that these capabilities can add the value that we see generally. So um, there are already brand reputation services out there, but taking that next leap and taking some of the research that's happening in parallel industries in marketing and the like and, and bringing that into some smaller wins and showing how it can be done, I think is the way to start. 
um, on a privacy lens, for example, privacy preserving technologies have been around for quite some time, so they're not new, but they haven't been able to find the scale and they haven't been able to find the right application and the right need. So consumers don't pay for privacy. They just assume they get it like public health care. And that's not until you lose it that you realize how important it was. So I think with the GDPR coming out and a lot of other regulatory discussions, um, you probably see that with the US, California, and New York has just been debating some of that with the right to vote and a few other things. Changing the language about saying that it's privacy is a human right means that we start to look at having privacy by design and therefore some of these technologies become necessary rather than a nice to have. So, but it's actually about achieving scale and usability. Unfortunately, a lot of these things, they still provide too much friction. I always thought the password was going to be long gone by, you know, 2019, but well and behold, we still have them. Why? Because the alternatives are still too hard to use and they don't scale and they have other problems that are unintended consequences like the biometrics. So I think it's about saying, um, take a particular problem, find a very simple way of solving it, but making sure that there's an economic case to be used for it. And GDPR, I think, for all its unintended consequences, which are pretty poor if you were the ones who got all those pop-ups in, in May. Yes. <laughs> you know, you got all those, sign here, accept the cookies, and, and but where's the security? Yeah, I got more privacy by doing that. Um, it's I, I think that that's a trigger point for us to be asking different questions and building some small solutions that can show that you're not you're not increasing the cost of doing business you know you're not making it harder for the consumer to to get to do what they need to do um but you're you're making it uh not why not but what I mean, it, you're making it a why not not if question so you, you, you've got to chunk this down. Unfortunately, cybersecurity and privacy is still seen to be too esoteric. And while the researchers here and abroad are doing a lot of really interesting cutting-edge research, which in a couple of years could see the light of day into something more application-based, um, it's still seen uh, the barrier to using some of these things is still considered high and there's a bit of apathy still in the market. Um so that's why you're starting to see so much reaction. I would say that there's still a lot of apathy, not at our level, but I think at a citizen level, that trade-off of convenience and not understanding or reading, you know, the privacy folks need little icons and the icons need to be able to, do you care about it? Are you signing in? Are you opting out? Rather than 25 pages because when... A teenager or a child says, I want that new application. They want it then and then and there. So a parent is under duress to say, okay, click, click now. So I think that's kind of one problem statement. I think the other is that the, the convenience thing is not driving any of this because, and as you said, it's almost like you need some massive train wreck in order for average consumers to start saying, oh, I completely now understand all the implications of what's going on with my privacy from a 
health collection biometrics data, you know, some of the things that you talked about before, because if you bring it down to the consumer level, that's what it's all about really, isn't it? Well, see, I I look at it this way and and it may not be to everyone's liking, but I I think that within cybersecurity and privacy, we have... We have an economic issue. It's unbalanced. It costs a lot to put in privacy, but it doesn't cost as much to be impacted by it because mm-hmm. the cost isn't worn by the person who actually owns the data. So it's too far down the track. So I like to think that there's a role here for government and regulators to really make a difference. And I don't mean by over-regulating, but I mean by making it a question of if you if you don't need that level of information to do business or to provide the service or to provide that capability, then it should be super expensive to collect it and manage it. So you change the economic model. So for example, why when I go and buy a pair of shoes, um, maybe it's my hundredth pair, but when I go and buy that <laughs> pair of shoes, why does the shop need to know my date of birth, my email address, my full details and address? Why? You're not shipping it to me. You're not paying me. You're not giving me buyer protection. So why do you need to ask for this? And so as a consumer, if we're just talking at consumer level, I don't feel that I have the, I'm not empowered to say, no, I will not give you this information because you have to, in order to get your your pair of shoes. Whereas from that shop's perspective, it should be super expensive for them to ask me for that information because of all the red tape it requires for them to manage it securely with privacy and leg- and legislation. So therefore, they should be asking twice, do I really need it? And if I don't, I don't collect it. If you start changing the economic model, then people will not be so lazy. And I don't mean just developers. I, I mean everyone. Everybody in the supply chain will, will stop being lazy and will actually say, if we don't need it, don't ask for it. Um, and if we don't ask for it, then we don't have the obligation to protect it to the full extent. Therefore, you know, it's a win-win. Beautiful. You just answered my next question. No. <laughs> that was fantastic because I was really wanting to understand how do we flip that economic value and model. Now, I'm not completely confident that it's going to be done with legislation, but what else, how else can you achieve that? And I think you're right. I think the only way you can do it is by legislation, by having some serious economic impact. Well, you know, maybe it's, I'm not a fan of over-legislating, right? I'm not a fan of that. I think we start going into a, a compliance mindset and I firmly believe compliance is not security. It is important, but not sufficient. Um, in, in my mind, it's um, maybe it's just making sure we have sufficient enough regulation to make it clear what the guardrails are uh, and what are the behaviors that we expect of those who are collecting information and managing it, right? The custodians. They don't own it. I mean, depending if you look at the terms and conditions, but um, the custodians. And with that comes a level of responsibility, and that's what legislation should make a little bit clear. What is that level of responsibility? But then I look at things like we've got privacy commissioners, we've got, you know, certain regulators like APRA and ASIC and all those. And for worse or not, and whether you think they're doing the right job or not, do they have enough teeth? 
Because when someone does not apply those guardrails in the way that is expected from a societal perspective, then you should be held accountable, right? And then the more you do that, the more they feel the burden of responsibility, whether that is financially, societally, they lose their license or social license to operate, the more they start asking, well, it is going to be expensive for us to do this, isn't it? We have to take a, a real hard look at this. And the, and that changes the economics. So maybe it's not a question of saying I'm, I need to put more legislation and more this. It's just making sure that what we've got is appropriate. And then, you know, effectively backing it up. Mm. Put your money where your mouth is. If someone has a breach and they did not take reasonable and sufficient measures for the information they collected, the systems they, they were running, um, then frankly, you should be held accountable. And once we start doing that, we start saying, well, you know, the behaviors we asked you to follow because we legislated or we set those as standards, we mean them and you didn't do it. And there's no excuse these days. I think we're yet to see that play out because we've had so many breaches reported. We haven't actually seen anything yet. You know, I looked at the quarterly report basically and, in fact, someone from the U.S., highlighted it to me this morning on LinkedIn and said, what do you think about this? And, you know, at the moment what we're seeing is just a dissection of how many have reported. What we haven't seen is that big challenge of what happens next if they say they're going to remediate and they say that they've committed to remediate both the impact on the individual and their own organization's policy standards controls, how do we know? And what if they do it again? What if and what they, if they do it again? Offender? So we're going to have these kind of repeat offenders and, and but I think we're just not far enough down the journey of that to start getting the big reveal. Right now we're just seeing numbers and it looks like fatigue, right? But right now we're not really unpacking. We talk to Graham clearly about British Airways, you know, cost of doing business. But what happens when shareholders start saying, well, that was a big cost of business and we want to know why, you know, what's wrong with the way that you're managing data because it's impacting our shareholder value. I, I agree with you, though, that that seeing teeth in what we've currently got in place would be really helpful, but I just don't think that we've kind of seen that, seen that yet. No, and I think it's a challenge still that we have in this industry because if you were to look at, I mean, British Airways is playing out now, so we'll we'll see how far that goes. And we've seen, I think it was the Marriott Hotels um, having you know similar issues being raised to the fore. But if you were looking back a couple of years and you saw the target um, breach and, you know, that highlighted a number of vulnerabilities that was applicable regardless of the industry that you're in and it really highlights the supply chain issues um, and we haven't even touched the su software supply chain, the digital supply chain, which to me is the sleeping giant and the elephant in the room that nobody talks about or has a strong handle on and, um you know, we'll go there if you want to. But um, I look at the target and there was um, a, a gentleman who's now chief security officer for an industry. I won't call him out and he hasn't necessarily given me permission to rephrase him, but he made a really interesting point, which I, I really do agree with. And that is that if you looked at the target breach, 
and the failures along the way where they had they had controls in place you, you you cannot question whether they were sufficient but they had a number of controls in place where they could have reduced the impact of said breach um and they didn't right for various reasons they just ignored them but you look at that and the implications from that breach was yes it was highly costly it also was one of the first of the breaches that cost certain senior executives their position they also had a share price implication which was quite devastating for a period of time and yet it rebounded right um you could argue did they retain their full shareholder value in the sufficient time they did so for i think it was maybe 6 or 8 months there was quite a shareholder hit on the price of target um being a listed entity because of the fallout of all of this and the warts all that came about and and it showed that they had a loss of faith from the executives but then again if looking back even now they've retained that value so if you would have make just an economic argument around you know should we have invested so much in cybersecurity should we have had that capability should we've been on the front foot well no because we cost us some time then both share price and um you know reputation but you know does it stop people going to our shops no did we retain our price earnings ratio yeah we we retained it over a period of time so we we've rebounded from that we learned our lesson on sure so if you're just looking at the economics this is where i think cyber falls because purely an economic conversation is not the right one to have because the consequences of the targets and the british airways and the various other breaches around the world because of the the nature of what they are re- represent their digital their long tail consequences that we don't necessarily feel all of it up front so some of those direct costs we can say yeah okay we're not we're not on a path for making the right investments or continuous investments in cyber because they don't pay um but the long tail of it is well that information's out there that in that uh, system and other information is out there what are malicious persons who have far more creativity and time up their sleeve than you and i what are they going to do with that what is the long game they're playing and if we're talking nation states it's a long game and i don't and we cannot necessarily attribute the economics of that in today's thinking and if we don't think about the threat landscape much more broadly than those immediate breaches and opm is a fantastic case looking at what information was breached there and social security numbers of a vast number of government employees in very very interesting roles then when we're not investing and we're not protecting the future generations in the right way we're not looking after our businesses our future businesses and our future generations if we're just having an economic argument on today's terms And David Lacey talked about this when we interviewed David about the long game and how all these small events they don't look small at the time but how they all culminate into capturing all this data for a long for an absolutely long game. I'm going to jump to one of your other favorite subjects which is artificial intelligence. I know that you've been doing quite a bit of work around that. Yeah look I think artificial intelligence I think is exciting on so many fronts 
it has the potential to, if applied for social good, to transform our lives, whether it's um, the way in which we look at preventative health, where we look at lifestyle, um, potentially to disrupt the way even medicine and the way in which we deal with um, disease and, and health and, you know, there's some exciting stuff happening even in Australia in that way with IVF and Presogen and, and, and those sorts of companies, um, Life Whisperer. Phenomenal um, ways of applying technology to better society and better human, humanity. Um, but like anything, you can also understand that it can be used uh, for malicious purposes, which, you know, has other applications, but with, with artificial intelligence, um, we get caught up in the whole Terminator sort of perspective around artificial intelligence. And, and that could be a future, um, general artificial intelligence at this stage is still seen a long, long way off. What we're seeing at the moment is more narrow art, artificial intelligence, which are, the application of artificial tech, artificial intelligence techniques and, and, and applications that are very specific. So machine learning is just an aspect of that. And I'm sure you've, you've had other interviewees that can give you much more technical descriptions of that. Um, and we've seen the application of various forms of artificial intelligence with aut autonomous systems like the Teslas um, trying to move up the stack there with some of their levels of autonomy. Um, obviously, the military have tried various forms of that in, in order to protect a lot of the servicemen and women out in contested environments. Um, the, the challenge, though, with artificial intelligence is that and this is the conversation you and I've been having offline is that in order to build some of these technology, uh, enable enablers, we're asking engineers and data scientists to effectively codify what it means to be human and to codify what it means to make human based decisions, uh, at scale. And that's not a bad thing, but you know, they're not anthropologists, they're not ethicists, they're not user designers. And that's okay because they should be working with all of the above and making those decisions. But in actual fact, what artificial intelligence and a lot of the more advanced forms of that with, you know, um, uh, what they call the adversarial networks and, um, the, the GANs and deep learning and all these other things that I'm sure you've, you've heard in your, your talks is that, um, it's holding up a mirror to what society is today and how they behave, how we think what we consider to be um, polite society or civil society or not. And while these things have always been discussions and always been thought through with um, psychologists and anthropologists and um, sociologists and various other ologists, um, we've never really sat down and codified them. So now what we're asking is to hold up a mirror and put that down on paper and make those automated decisions. And in a future where computational literacy and those sorts of creativity skills are going to be so super important, um, if we give AI the right to vote, at what point does the human still stay in the loop? At what point does it, does it mean to be human? And those, those sort of points are, coming up very much in a military context as you would when you're talking about autonomous weapons and things like that, you know, 
um, some of the things they're grappling with make absolute sense in other aspects of industries, which is one of the things I find fascinating is that if you give AI the vote, um, do they make all decisions? Do they make the decisions to kill? Do they make the decisions to, um, uh, you know, move left, kill the old woman on the road, the trolley conversation when you talk about autonomous systems, you know, and if you do give them the vote, then what does that do to insurance? What does that do to liability? Um, can you say that because it had intent, which is not what we had before, that it's okay and you're off the hook, but then what does that do to morality? What does So all of these really existential questions are which may or may or not have been answered in full, we now need to be making much stronger decisions about that because we're about to put them in software. Mm. We're about to make those programmable. And so you start asking the questions of which um, a number of institutes here and abroad, um, and I'll point to some of those if you're interested, but um, you start asking, you know, what does it mean to be ethical? Um, and if these are programmable decisions, then I want them to be transparent. And there are cases where some of this AI technology used to make criminal justice system responses, making decisions about who gets hired or who gets, who doesn't. And there's some innovative stuff happening in Australia as well, um, where they've gotten it wrong and, or at least gotten it wrong to the extent that was expected as an outcome. And the first question you ask is, well, show me how you've made that decision. And today we, we can do that because we can explain it. But when you make, when you're asking artificial intelligence based systems to make that, they're very opaque. It's very black box. So unless you have a PhD to unpack some of these algorithms, how are you going to know that the decision they made was made reasonably? Um, and that you're willing to live with that decision. And then you ask other questions about, well, if they made that decision and it was different to the way I would have made it, does that make it right or wrong? And so one of the interesting things that happened, I think it was about two years ago, is uh, I think it was a couple of Google scholars or was it Facebook, that to a point this transparency and, and talk about um, responsible AI, I like to call it, although Europe... Um, the European Union came out with um, what they call transparent AI or ethical AI principles. I like to call it responsible AI because it's a lot broader. It's about trust. It's about ethics. It's about transparency, but it's also about security and privacy. And if you ask these sorts of questions, but two years ago, sorry, my point was Facebook or Google, um, they pitted uh, a couple of algorithms together. And at that point, it was just normal run of the mill. You kind of learn. These are how these algorithms start learning what was transformative and what they stopped the program was when the AI created something, a new language. And this is where it got scary because up until that point, the whole idea about what set us apart from algorithms is the fact that we're the creative bunch and then suddenly you have the algorithms creating and you think oh my god now this is what is it not the that horrible tom cruise movie sorry i'm not a fan uh, it's almost mission <laughs> impossible it's like it's this mission impossible sort of world where you're sort of saying we're the creative bunch and you guys just do what you're programmed to do and now suddenly you've brought new insights to the table but you've created something wow this is something that we, and something that we can't even ourselves as human understand, which is even a worse wow. 
Now, that's the negative side. The plus side is you need a lot of that. And that becomes really interesting when you start thinking about the adversarial stuff that happens in cyber and how you need that to be able to subvert some of this thinking. So it's kind of like a bit chicken and egg, but again, it's we're creating and we're not thinking about what we're creating. So we need to stop and think, but you can't stop, think and not build. So how do we do that in parallel? And that's one of the reasons why I love some of the approach Europe had with the responsible AI principles where they came out and questioning Isomov's um, principles there around um, uh, machines and and the, the robotics, um, which is turning that on its head. But Australia's got a number of institutes where they're starting to think about AI. There was a discussion paper uh, which closed in May where the Australian government out of the last federal budget put some money in to start saying, well, actually, we need a framework for AI which is all great. Every country is coming out with frameworks. Um, don't forget China's um, strategy around AI. They're going to make that and they've got critical mass. And if not, they'll um, use their cultural approach to get it. Um, but, you know, there's there's all of this happening around the world. I think the interesting question is that I think we've come to a point in history where as a society, we cannot solve these problems solely as a nation. We need to solve this as a globe. So it comes to call into question all of these international organizations. They need to step up and truly show collaboration because AI and responsible AI does not happen just in America and expect the rest of the world to follow. You've got to work at it as a, as a massive world um, little countries can do their little thing, but ultimately you want to do this properly. You want to do this with safety and, you know, get the real value of AI. You need to work at a global level and have almost like what they call like the Geneva Convention. Well, I was just about to say that. It does seem to me that, you know, the the simple simplistic answer is we need a gen we need a Geneva Convention to cover some of the ethics and whether this is good for society. Now, I know that as multidimensional societies, we have different values, but we can at least agree on some guiding principles that help us navigate this AI world. Look, this has just been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to talking to you another time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Beverly, you know that little emoji that has the mind blown emoji? That's how I'm feeling right now about that chat. It was so fascinating. I think my head hurts. I think listening to it might have been easier than doing it because I found it probably one of the most difficult um, chats I've had because, you know, it's not an area that I'm super comfortable with yet. And there was just so much to share. It was really the McDonald's of chats, the all you can eat, <laughs> everything stuffed into that conversation. Yeah. And what we, did you think? And we could have kept going. Oh. Uh, but and one of the things I just wanted to add is that we actually didn't get a chance to ask Daniela how to follow her. So for those of you that are on Twitter, Daniela is at Daniela, 
that's with two L's and that's underscore T zero five. So Daniela underscore T zero five. So if you wanted to follow her on Twitter, you'll find it there. And of course they will because she has so many interesting things to talk about. But I, so the thing that kind of jumped out at me, there were many things, uh, but that conversation part where you talked about changing the economic value of collecting data mm-hmm. and that consumer viewpoint um, and, and how you make it costly to collect data that really isn't actually needed. And I would love to see this happen because I have a very recent example. I was trying to sign up to a, a webinar. I couldn't join the live version of it. It was on cyber awareness. And uh, in order to access the recording, I had to give so much data <laughs> um, away. And in particular, the phone number was really, I had a real gripe about it because there was, I'd obviously ticked the piece that said I didn't want to be contacted, yet they still insisted that to get past, to click through past the form, I had to give them a phone number. And I tried all the tricks. I tried just entering all the zeros. I tried all these different things. Wild cards. <laughs> <laughs> now they wanted a legitimate phone number for me that they were never going to use. And that to me is just frustrating as a consumer. So I I think that was a really important point of that need to change the economic value around collecting unneeded data. Yeah. Look, I found this with loyalty cards. I don't have any. And, you know, the reality is I say to those organisations that I'm shopping from um, or store owners, you know that I'm a loyal customer. You know my name. You can see how much I spend here. Why don't you just give me the loyalty discount anyway? No is the response. If you, and they're really fierce about it, if you won't sign up to the loyalty plan, we're not giving you a discount. So you know what I'll be doing. I'll be voting with my feet and this is what we need to do. We need to be able to say, no, I'm not signing up to that and I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. The other bit, I think that positive role that AI can play and just, you know, we, we, we're we already seeing it today in cybersecurity. Mm. So there was some Capgemini research and we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, it was called Reinventing Cybersecurity with AI. Mm. That was published this year and it was a survey of 850 senior execs and one of the things they said was um, around 64% of them said AI was decreasing the costs uh, to detect and respond to breaches for them. So there's a real positive, tangible Mm. benefit that artificial intelligence has today and, of course, will have hopefully in the future. Yeah, all that wonderful AI aggregation it's working. It seems to be working really well. And, you know, those attack vectors are coming up faster instead of having to sift manually through them all, right? Exactly. And and we know the cyber criminals are taking advantage of, of these tools as well. Um, and I was reading an example that criminals are successfully using algorithms to send tweets, uh, spear phishing tweets, and it's allowing them to do that six times faster than a human could with twice the success. Mm. So that's the other element we have yeah. to bring into the conversation as yeah. well as how cyber criminals are using 
So with the proliferation of AI and you're a product developer, what's your thoughts about all these competitive pressures? They're going to be cutting corners. What what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think where we are today is security is still that, oh, gosh, I've got to go and get this, you know, certified that it's compliance before I launch it to my customers. So not being built in from the ground up. And that's, that's clearly where we need, need to get to, uh, with, with products. But of course, as we know, there's that competitive pressure to, to get products out the door. And I think that the risk is that we're going to see them compromise on standards, which kind of really leads us to the ethics discussion around AI and just getting these guardrails in place and, um, you know, we know that there's some good white papers. We know that there's an, some emerging standards. You know, we've got them in cybersecurity, ISO 27001 and 2. We need to start really seeing de facto standards around the ethics. Um, a little bit controversial whether we as cybersecurity professionals should sign an ethics agreement. What do you think? <laughs> I think you've just developed another podcast there, Beverly. And that's about all we've got time for today. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes. And for more information, visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on Twitter at CyberSEC Cafe.